meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcoat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Shortcoat Podcast. I'm Dave Etler, the Gary Johnson of the podcasting world. Uh, just intelligent enough to listen to once in a great while. Just popular enough to occasionally hear above the louder, more charismatic voices. Just attractive enough that people don't avert their eyes, and just well-known enough to not be unknown. I'm here, fortunately for me, I'm here with some folks who, if they aren't well-known, it's only because they're just breaking through. They're just, they're nascent voices in the world. Like the, that, that cute baby chameleon I saw hatching from its shell in a video this morning on Facebook. Anybody see that video? Yeah. Yeah, Levi knows. Uh, it's beautiful. Beautiful moment of birth. That's you guys. Uh, they, these people that I'm with today are uh, Levi Endelman. Hello. John Pienta. Yo. Alice Yee. Hi. Rachel Schenkel. Hello. And newcomer Adam Irwood. Actually, Alice is a newcomer too. I'm sorry, I wrote this before you decided to join us today. Alice and Adam are both newcomers, which it, I'm always very excited to have, uh, to have new blood on the show. Um, just because. And what made you, we'll start with you, Adam. What made you want to join our little crew? Um, so I guess I've just always loved uh, listening to podcasts. So I guess I thought this would be kind of a cool opportunity because it's sort of been a dream just to actually be on one finally, be on oh. the other end. And I also like to talk on tangents. And this is the setting where people <laughs> on the other end are forced to listen to me. And yeah. They can't just shut me out. It's, so that's cool, too. It is really great yeah. that way. This is going to be good, Adam. What about what about you, Alice? <laughs> Pretty much the same. I love podcasts, but I'm usually too shy to speak. Yeah. It's all right. Nobody <laughs> listens anyway. Uh, well, I'm just happy to have you aboard. Uh, John, you uh, got called out by a listener. <laughs> Uh, Jake sent us an email, and and I, I always like to address listener feedback, no matter how, no matter what it is. Fortunately, this listener feedback is not about me, so I can be. I know that's it. That's it's so much better because like when you can't have a conversation with someone, you you can give them feedback. And just it's like shooting fish in a barrel, <laughs> well, you know. Well, Jake, so I can I can shoot it back. Well, Jake Jake sent us an email. He said uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this was about your, um, you, you sort of ranted on a topic a couple weeks ago. Um, oh, yeah, I went off. What was the, it remind, remind us again what the topic was without, you know, going too far into it. What was, what was the, uh, what was the rant? So we were talking about the, um, was it the two-week rule for an embryo? And then, then I really launched, I really launched on it. So basically the argument was that, 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 um, it, it was wrong to do things to an embryo after two weeks because it responded to stimuli. Mm. And so I started by saying I call bullshit because, um, I mean, a single cell immediately fer fertilized embryo responds to stimuli. Like, put it in a freezer, it stops growing. Yeah. That's responding to stimuli. So, like, if you're going to make that argument, you have to make it a little deeper. And so that's the same thing. And then I just went off. I was like, okay, here we go. The same thing applies to, you know, oh, I don't, I don't eat animals because they feel pain. You know, well, plants demonstrate pain responses. Bacteria demonstrate right, right. pain responses, so, et cetera. 
So Jake sent us an email saying, uh, LOL at John's bioethics rant during the Fellowship of the Mike episode. Uh, encouraged him, encourage him not to make such a simplistic tribe-like division between the progressive scientists and the arbitrary rule setters. It seems like he began in response to the 14-day rule, but quickly digressed into disparaging vegetarians' personal ethics and even mentioning a 2,000-year-old book that he doesn't think <laughs> at all certain was present, open, or being read during the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare's Ethics Advisory Board of 1979. Uh... No, no problem with the charge topic or opinions. Only the apparent shallow slash uncontrolled argument. <laughs> Ow, ouch. ouch! Yeah, I know. That's so. But the reality of it is, you know, you can't separate any argument or you can't separate any, you know, uh, event from the culture in which it is embedded, right? So even if they weren't, you know, reading from the Bible or things like that, I mean, like you're not reading from the Bible when you're arguing, you know, Roe v. Wade. Um, hopefully that's not Some the basis are. for your lo lo for your legal opinion. Uh, but the precedent is set by a culture that was steeped in that. Mm. So there is no way to separate those in a certain level. So okay. to, to maximize our ability to separate that, that's kind of what I'm arguing. And I just, you know, I was so on my soapbox that that I just went. You know, and I didn't have time to do all the nuance, and it's and yeah. it's hard. You know, it's hard to give a we've give only a got, response. I mean, even if we devoted a whole show to something like that, we've only got you know forty five, fifty minutes or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's a complex issue, uh, but nevertheless, uh, thanks for the feedback, Jake. Uh, we always love to hear from listeners, good or bad. Um, and you know, we always joke about how our opinions aren't necessarily backed by completely logical thought. Well, um, mine, mine is not. I mean, I, we're, we're, I'm a human being. You know, we're all human beings. Yeah. And oh. we, we all have like, like a huge amount of what we do is just drawn by like very simplistic sort of stimulus response patterns in our yeah. brain to save energy. Well, we're happy to have our asses handed to us whether we deserve it or not. So uh, if you'd like to uh, give us some feedback, definitely uh, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, shortcoat.com slash tell us. Number of ways to get in touch with us, um, including leaving us a message at uh, 347 short CT 347 It's definitely something we'd love to uh, to we'd, we'd love to hear from you uh, I did want to start out uh, talking or I did want to talk today about an interesting thing in Uganda some researchers in Uganda are doing uh, some interesting research boy <laughs> Wow that was the Possibly the best it, intro it, I've ever to a topic I've ever done. It, it, it possibly, possibly was. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. Some researcher, <laughs> you guys, some researchers in Uganda are doing something kind of interesting, in my opinion, vital. They are teaching Ugandan children how to spot bullshit health claims. I, I wish they'd started here, but you know, like, it's gotta, we got to start somewhere, and Uganda is as good a place as any. The researchers wanted to know can we teach the principles? of evidence-based treatment to Ugandan children. Uh, one of the researchers who works with policymakers in the WHO said most adults don't have time to learn and they have a lot to unlearn. And when I read that in this article on Vox.com, which I will post in the show notes, I thought of the fact that the education system in the U.S. is based almost entirely on, um, I think, ideas that were relevant uh, maybe a hundred or so or more years ago. Uh, those of the Industrial Revolution, preparing people for work in factories and such, but not for things like uh, self-directed learning, mm -hmm. which is important, obviously, for people in the medical field who need to spend their lives learning and relearning and unlearning things. 
that same researcher says, I'm looking to the future. I think it's too late for my generation. Um, is it too late for our generation in general? Which one of our generation? Yeah, well, I, my generation, surely it's too late. Yeah, your generation uh, is is still thoroughly Trump yeah. Trump supporting. I mean, we're we are we are definitely screwed. Um, but I was wondering about your generation. Uh, do do you think uh, were were you like I, I know we're going to have a sample error here, but you know were you adequately prepared for life as a self directed learner before you came to medical school, or do you feel like you know you were just you know fact learners? Well, I think you're talking to like a very self-selected group of people yeah. here. Um, so I, I don't I don't know who can speak for all of us here, but I think probably all of us would say like we were fairly well prepared for self-directed learning. Right? Right? Anybody yeah. disagree? I feel okay. like our type of education system isn't so much the industrialized revolution thing. More so since we have like English classes, we talk about like transcendentalism and like Walt Whitman and stuff like that. I feel like that's very... America independence get on your feet and just in my high school we would have like like units on rhetoric and units on here's what these advertisements are really? doing yeah God, I had a sh shitty high school <laughs> I I you know that's I think that's pretty refreshing to hear because I I like I I learned what self-directed learning meant when I was getting my undergrad degree in math and when it was like oh okay here's like 50 theorems like you got to memorize them and then you got to use them to prove theorem 51. Yeah. And there's like, okay, that's have what at I, it. That's go, what go I remember. It. You know, you, 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 you can do that. You know, I believe in you. Good luck. And you have to figure it out. And there is no, you know, there is no recipe for that. There's no PowerPoint that you can go and study and that, you know, so I, I love that your example was, you know, rhetoric and, and, and I think, you know, my exposure as a, as a high school student probably was best through things like reading and literature sure. that exposed me to asking critical questions about what I'm reading, what I'm learning, because, you know, I'm, you're not going to learn how to be a good scientist in a high school science class like that like my at least my impression on it it's like in physics you get a lecture on physics you get a lecture on how electricity and magnetism work you get a lecture on how and like maybe you sort of do an experiment but a lot of it's sort of pre-baked in for you yeah. i uh my my friend uh and alum alumna from the college of medicine Catherine turner who congratulations if you're listening Catherine, on uh, your uh, appointment as an attending physician this week uh, at CHOP. Good job. Uh, she was posting earlier this week from a website called uh, yourlogicalfallacyis.com. Uh, and it basically the idea of this website is you can, you know, if somebody's, you know, trying to argue something and they're screwing it up through some logical fallacy, you can go to this website and share the individual logical fallacy that they are committing, sort of like the snopes.com of logical. Mm -hmm argument and so they have every logical fallacy that that we know and you can just share that with that person or or in general and i it, that made me realize that um we i don't ever recall being educated on logic or logical fallacy i feel like i feel like if you got that education if you got that information it's because maybe you're on the debate team or or you know something along those lines 
So is that what they're teaching in Uganda then? Like, what are they doing? Well, I don't. So they're they're basically, you know, like like many cultures, including our own. You know, there are bullshit health claims like, you know, if you rub dung on your hand for a burn, you will it, it will cure you. Well, I mean, no, probably not. You're 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 being healed because of time and because of your body and all that kind of stuff. So are they like teaching then? So I think they're teaching how to evaluate okay. bogus or non-bogus health claims. They're, they're trying to they're trying to take the rules of evidence based treatment and distill them down to something that school children can learn and see if that helps them navigate their... I'm curious, like, what, what exactly... Do, because evidence-based treatment is, like, such a broad term of amorphous things. Like, are they teaching them, like, the scientific method to be like, okay, think about this. Would it work? Imagine that. Test this. Or is it like, let's do a sample size of 50 people? I, I, well, I think that's those so, are all. So it's it's more about critical thinking and reasoning through the claims, and that that it's really you know it's about discussing. Oh, okay, is that really true? And then in health, you have a couple of specific things that you can point to and say that that don't necessarily apply to other argument places. Like in health, you can say, well, treatments don't necessarily make someone better or worse people can get better or worse without treatments. So to claim that your treatment killed someone or your treatment cured someone is not good, and you know, because somebody got better and they did your thing. And the, and the, the rubbing dung on your hand is actually an example out of their book. Not to say necessarily that they do that in, I don't, in, I don't in Uganda, right. but um, that is actually in the little, like, uh, it's not a coloring book, but it's like a, like Comic a cartoon. Book. Yeah. Book. Uh, yeah, but I think there's some of that, you know, sort of, and they're, you know, they're, they're not, they might, I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen the actual, you know, yeah. materials, um, but I'm assuming that there is, you know, some logic content in it that says, you know, it says, this is how to evaluate a, this is yeah. how to evaluate a statement, you know, how to, how to recognize things that might in fact be bullshit, basically. Yeah. yeah. That's sort of sad in some way because I grew up in a Chinese family that my parents are doctors, but at the same time, I would like drink the fallopian fat of frogs for like my health and for my brain. And it's like, <laughs> just gonna toss that in there. Like, what? I would still drink that because that shit is sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. That no, because that it's, stuff it's, is delicious. Are you serious? But, yeah, like, All right. you know, like... All right, Alice Yee, <laughs> you are tasked with procuring some fallopian fat of frogs. All right, I can do it. For sampling on the show. I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll do it. Was it, was it like an aspect of uh, traditional Chinese medicine or... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's delve into this a little more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, can you describe... First of all... <laughs> Must take a lot of frogs to develop enough fallopian fat for one person to drink. They're they're unless and so what fatty. does it taste like? Can you describe? Dave, it's probably counterfeit fallopian fat. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't. Maybe it's not actually from frogs. Right. I mean, is what's the standardizing? <laughs> or fallopians? What? <laughs> yeah, who are these fallopians? <laughs> Uh, now, yeah. So, what does this taste like? So it's like it's like a um, a soup, 
Mm-hmm. It's like as if you were to take jello, but make the jello sort of cotton candy like and it's clear and then you add some sugar to that it. That sounds really interesting, actually. Like And they're like little squiggles. It's like mixology with fallopian All right. tubes of frogs. Yeah, no, this is <laughs> it is some good stuff. This is something we we must have on the show. <laughs> Uh, let me know how long okay. it will take. We'll talk about this after the show. Let me okay. know how long it will be before I can get me some of that sweet, sweet fallopian fat. <laughs> what What is it good for again? Um, I'm not actually sure. Do you have to ask my grandma that? Okay. I think it's good for like brain development, for making you smarter. You got a computer just, there, like, John. You could research it. No, if you want. no, no, no. I, I, I got to be in up. on this. No, no, no. I'll look it up. We'll uh, get there eventually. Yeah, I think it's interesting because my my grandmother is OB/GYN, and then she's also um, an herbologist. So like, I think it's interesting to be like, they're teaching Ugandan children to evaluate bullshit claims because some people might argue that alternative medicine and traditional medicine are bullshit claims. But at the same time, it's like it's so embedded in their culture that if you're trying to pry that apart in an institution or like a place, a country where medicine and traditional medicine um, tend to be so in- intertwined together. Mm. It's like you're making a cultural warfare. That's in inter- some That's way. very interesting. I, yeah. I when I was reading this, I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this is a WHO. I think this is a WHO effort. Like, and- couldn't it be read as like, oh, these white people are coming in again? Yeah, you know? that's a really good point. It, it could be, but I think part of the intention also is that there is this huge. Um, you know the the inis- sort of inescapable capitalism push like in the you know quote developing world um to get all of these products to people well, and you know and that like as that sort of industrial market sort of builds up there's like like we've largely won the battle on smoking uh, from a public health standpoint in America mm-hmm. like the majority of adult smokers in the last like 30 years have quit smoking definitely not true if you go to india it's gone exactly the opposite direction because when we you know they took that you know rj reynolds and whatever took the took all of the rules against them uh in that court case as carte blanche to just move everything overseas and just start marketing overseas and so the idea is you know we want as you get confronted with more and more of these claims not just your own traditional things but i mean i see it in medicine today and we can we've talked about this on the podcast before um there's a lot of uh things that modern medicine are claiming are good for you low-fat diet which are demonstrably terrible for you and and yeah, and, and and that's also, a bullshit health claim, n- right? Not, the not data only, can show it. Well, not only that, but we're as you know, Americans are confronted with BS every day in the form of you know your Doctor Oz's and your your food babes and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I think this is this gives credence to uh, this researcher who says you know it's too late for our generation but because we are so. I mean, even I who who i mean I, i'm not a, a scientist i'm not a, a student of medicine um but i like to think that i'm relatively you know an intelligent person um even i at times you know get sucked in by clickbait or whatever that says you know oh i'm gonna take this i'm gonna take this for my cold or whatever and we are just not we i don't think 
I don't think I have been all that prepared to evaluate things based on mm -hmm. science, you know, or based on good data or bad, you know, like where the data came from or all that kind of stuff. Human beings are, says are remarkably bad, remarkably bad at logic. Well, that's why we need to. That's why I think this kind of thing is is, in fact, important. So a the, the classic a implies B, A, therefore B. That people are pretty good at. But it turns out that we're really terrible at the other true thing, which is A implies or A implies B, not B, therefore not A. We tend to do the opposite. We say not A, therefore not B. So a great example of this was the the low fat diet hypothesis dietary fat leads to increases in cholesterol a therefore b so we're like a huge fan of causations when we can't recognize that it's just like a correlation is that right yeah. and so and so we can we can do that pretty well we can connect a and b but not a therefore not b is not true that is a false statement so we're saying dietary fat causes high cholesterol we do know that if you eat fat it will raise your cholesterol but not eating fat does not mean your cholesterol won't rise oh, okay. so that is that is a logical fallacy right there right so that is the diet hypothesis that we've been sold for the last 40 years 50 years and it's patently false. It's not even logically sound. It's not, I mean, it's not logically valid. My little brother just took the LSAT, and apparently that's, a, like, one of their big chunks of questions is just, like, logical statements, and then you have to figure out if it's true or false or, like, right or wrong. Wow, it's just, like, going through those. Like, does this imply this? Or Interesting. <laughs> um, it just seems like... It would be it would be great. It would be a great way to uh, prepare youth for the future to to make a part of any curriculum logic, <laughs> you know, like and I think I feel like this is this is yeah. like probably the most basic statement that this is the you know the most basic statement I could possibly make. But hey, logic's a good thing. You know, we could use more of that. Go, Levi, you look like you're going to say And something. then elect them president. And then, oh, no, I don't know if I want to go that far, you know? Like, ch charisma is so much more important than intelligence and logic. And I don't even... How did we get to this? Anyway, we're not going to go into the to the election right now. It's in a shambles anyway. I have, I have a question for you guys. And this is just to play devil's advocate. If, like, these claims that Dr. Oz makes and if these claims that food... Food, who food babe. Food babe makes. Who is this? Oh gosh, you'll have to do some offline research. On <laughs> okay. <it>. We we've <laughs> talked about her a long time. It's been a long time since we brought food babe up, but. Okay. Well, if the claims that these people make, if they don't harm people anyway, and they make people feel better, like why should we necessarily go on our pedestal and be like, okay, these are wrong? That's right. Capitalism won't work if people don't buy stuff they don't need. Exactly. <laughs> Let's very, go capitalism. It's very true for things that like actually don't hurt, but a lot of like alternative medicines do hurt. Like a lot of them will affect like liver enzymes mm -hmm. or like different things. Like a lot of stuff is totally what? benign, but some of it's not. And and when you don't have the training to 
tell one from the other, then you get into kind of sticky situations. And some of that too, when, uh, you know, patients will start taking some of these alternative medicines and then you get into talk to your doctor and they ask you about them. You, you just you sometimes will fail to mention things like mm-hmm. that because you, you don't think it's that that big of a deal. And it might have some significant interactions with other things you're taking. The, to add on top of that, there's the and I think the biggest, scariest one of them all is I think the the sort of opportunity cost argument like, oh, well, you gave me a steroid inhaler for my asthma and I still had an asthma attack. So that doesn't work. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do something else. And they, then I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to get a certain kind of acupuncture or something. Well, now you're foregoing a treatment that has stood rigorous testing as being beneficial for something that may or may not be harmful will definitely cost you money. Will, you know, et cetera. Is that a problem with acupuncture itself, or is that a problem with the fact that there was poor communication between the provider and the patient? That's a great question. I don't know. It, like, it, communication is a tough nut to crack because there's two because there's like, two sides to to you know I, I every bit like, of communication, right? I mean, there's the the provider who may yeah. make an earnest attempt to educate their patient, and then there's the patient who may not be equipped to understand. Yeah. The mm-hmm. communication that's being provided to them if it's not provided to them in just the right way. So kids who have eczema, it's a chronic condition and it you give uh, parents a steroid cream to help them treat their child. And it's su- it's surprising, you know, how many people think, oh, OK, that that made it go away. It's gone. You know, like, why is it coming back? Right. It's uh, and and so, but but that's one of the things that that some people, you know, if you if you haven't seen this problem in your practice, you might not think like, oh, okay, every time this comes back, you have to keep doing it. You have to keep doing it. This is a continuous thing you need to deal with. Asthma is a continuous disease. You know, it, this isn't just a one at a time thing. Psych so, like you said, often like this. Yeah, like you said, communication is a part of it, but. It's such a big topic, you know, how do we break it down and then how do we deal with marketing on top of it and how do we deal with competing claims and et cetera. Chantix is right for me. I don't, I don't, I don't remember what Chantix is. What is Chantix? What is that? It's, it's a stop smoking drug. Oh, it's a oh, nicotine wow. agonist. Okay. I just, it's great. It <laughs> stimulates your nicotine. Fantastic. Receptors. It's, it's nicotinic receptors. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be great. More. <laughs> Uh, Adam, you suggested we talk about an article on statnews.com about post-ICU delirium. Uh, And a quote from the article to start us off, anywhere from a third to more than 80% of ICU patients suffer from delirium during their hospital stay, and a quarter of all ICU patients suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder once they leave, a rate that's comparable to PTSD diagnoses among combat veterans and rape victims. What caught your eye about this story, Adam? Uh, so I initially pointed it out because John had uh, made a comment about a PTSD article, and so this was just in association with it. But uh, just something that is currently being addressed and just thought it would be interesting to bounce around ideas for how you would tackle this issue, especially because mm-hmm. the ICU is such a fast-paced environment, mm-hmm. um, and there's so many issues going on at one time, and physicians and nurses and such are seem stretched thin it's very difficult for them to even consider this issue as a major issue so 
um, how would you tackle that basically is why I brought it up. I mean, I'll, I've talked about my experiences in the ICU on the show before, but um, just to recap real quick, Guillain-Barre syndrome, 1995, uh, ICU for three weeks, ventilator, paralyzed from the eyebrows down for a while. Um, and I do, I, I don't know if I achieve, if, if my experience achieves the threshold of ICU delirium, but there were definitely some very <laughs> weird experiences and, and, and thoughts and, um, and things like that in my head. And I can totally, this is why this caught my eye because I have some direct experience and, and, um, and it made me think of, you know, not only these experiences, but, um, but how, you know, for a while afterwards, I was terrified of a lot of things that I wouldn't ordinarily have been terrified of. Um, maybe I did have a little touch of PTSD for, you know, months afterwards. And, um, and a lot of it seems to be driven by, as you said, as you implied, the, the sort of convenience slash ease of treatment um, of patients in the ICU. Um, perhaps in addition to medical necessity, um, you know, for instance, it's a lot easier for nurses and, and staff to deal with patients who are restrained or drugged or, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I like this. Personally, I like this focus on, you know, do we need to be? Do, do we need to be sedating patients to the extent where they are, you know, hallucinating or things like that? Is that what's really happening? That sort of thing. It, I, so I didn't get a chance to read the article, that's, but um, it's okay. It, we it, you we don't <laughs> we don't need to base things on on we don't need evidence <laughs> or data or well. But you know, there's always that person you can tell who they are based on. I can even tell who they are when I don't know who they are, and they're talking on another friend of mine's Facebook wall on an article and I'm like I know you didn't read the article I I, I can tell you're just reacting on the title because I read the article and they address exactly what you're talking about Uh, that's all right okay so um I see you so there's used to be this thing that they called I hope that it's a quote used to be but I think there are still places where they think this is a thing they call it ICU syndrome and they're like, oh, people in ICUs get all these mysterious symptoms. And it is delirium. Like it is if you look at it like one to one delirium, stop calling it ICU syndrome. They're getting delirious because of the things you do in the ICU. You mess up their sleep wake cycle so they don't sleep well. You give them drugs that are known to be associated with delirium, the benzodiazepines. So like Valium and those kinds of drugs. Um, and these are all, you know, if you're older or if you're medically ill, you're more likely to become delirious, etc. So there's these things that predispose us to it. And I think it's a really good thing to talk about because there are a lot of aspects of it that make humanistic care, you know, really good humane medical care that's considerate of the patient's experience that you would miss otherwise. So patients in an ICU who are on a ventilator, for example, if there's no windows, they don't know what time of day it is. They don't have a context because there's always lights on, right? Like yeah. the nurses and staff need to see where they're going. So it's always lit 24-7. And if you were just like, how do I take care of a critically ill patient? 
well, you might miss out on the fact that like they need the lights off part of the day. Probably you don't want to be doing intervention, you know, inter invasive procedures if you don't have to, you know, around the clock. You want to schedule them during the daytime or things that would wake them up. You give them time to sleep. Um, patients, if they don't have to lie all the way flat on their back and just stare at the ceiling, um, you might want to sit them up so they can see around. Because think about it. If you were put on a bed for eight days in a row just staring at the ceiling that would not be that you know we could have an argument about whether or not that's effectively torturing someone yeah I mean, right? I mean i'll tell you what if looking at the ceiling for three weeks straight is is like it's almost like a, a sensory deprivation in a way i mean you're you're just so unstimulated visually that and, and it's easy to miss out on these things i'll tell you what here's here's my i've probably mentioned this to you in your presence before but uh, a well-meaning friend <laughs> I've said this before on the show I'm certain well-meaning friend um, uh, noted that uh, I like country music oh no <laughs> and so uh, they played country music for three weeks straight <laughs> in the ICU can't stand country music anymore for some reason oh, no. uh, it's not that I loved it either I just was going through some sort of phase <laughs> when I was in a car I would listen to country music and so a friend noticed this and Suggested, <laughs> and you couldn't say no. I couldn't say no. I couldn't close my ear holes. I couldn't ask for a different station. It was just like country music for three weeks. <laughs> and I'll tell you what: there's no greater torture, it turns out, than country music for three weeks. <laughs> so, what would, you, what would you recommend in terms of like entertainment for those three weeks? Like, if you had to make a recommendation for people, what would you say would be good? <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe. Uh, seeking out a wider range of suggestions <laughs> from family members. <laughs> Not just the one and done. Uh, just being, being careful of what you say. Yeah, people, well, you just know. in passing. I, <laughs> you never know when it's going to come back and bite you. M uh, multiple Pandora stations. Yeah. Guys, multiple. Maybe. Not just one. <laughs> that way, if it's a bad day, it's just a bad day. Yeah. Not a bad month. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, that was awesome. Um, but yeah, uh, you, you got to vary the stimuli. And I like the idea of like, oh, actually sitting people up. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know if you can sit up when you're intubated very well, but mm -hmm. but it uh, just depends. It depends on the, the case on, the on case, a case right. by case basis. Right. So if somebody's having like a stroke and they're having problems getting blood into the areas of their brain, you want them to lie flat. Sure. For as long as is necessary based on yeah. the pathogenesis of their stroke. It seems like the wrong reason to do anything well it seems like among the wrong reasons could be that uh you know it's easier for people to provide care to do x in in, in the icu i mean there are that's okay but at the same time it's like far it should be far from the exclusive reason why you do it so as a as a paramedic we got a lot of warnings like a lot of warnings because it can be really tempting when you have a very combative patient to have your police allies um, give you basically authority to restrain them. Mm -hmm. And there have been people who were hogtied basically because they were not cooperating and to disastrous consequences. And so the convenience argument is unacceptable. And that I think most of the providers can understand where that's coming from. But I don't think to a certain extent, we have to find ways of making this clear to like administration. 
you know like if you have a lot of patients you can't just like sedate everyone right or whatever right but at some point it does become a limited resource issue right you know you can't one-to-one nursing staff i mean our hospital is it's like we're literally over capacity now and and so you can't one-to-one staff every single patient there there's, there's just not enough nurses yeah so, so you have to make some decision and so i'm not saying you should you know sedate everyone but you have to be able to find some middle ground I was going to say, I worked as an NA um, before I came to med school here at the hospital. The and nursing assistant? Nursing yeah. assistant, yes. And um, there would be times when like, we'd have three people on the unit who needed sitters, and we had two NAs, and what do we do then? Like, We just don't have anybody to help out with our normal duties. We're just like, and we have still somebody else who needs a sitter, so we either have to like find a float, or one of the nurses has to do that, and the other nurses have to like split their duties, and it's... It can be a mess, especially it ain't easy. when it's so hard to actually like use restraints in the hospital. It's like every fifteen minutes you have to like check them and redocument mm-hmm. them, and like yeah. I, I sometimes wonder now, thinking back, uh, would it have in some ways been better if I hadn't been sedated? I'm thinking in particular intubation. So one of the things you know that I wanted to constantly do was pull out the tube. And so I did have to be restrained because I wanted to pull out the tube. Well, maybe if I hadn't been as deeply sedated, I could have understand why, could have understood why the tube was there, um, even though it's uncomfortable. I don't know. Like, do you, do you have any ideas about whether that's whether one is able to so we actually, be that intellectual about it when you're? We actually had a patient on my unit who um, had a similar problem. He kept trying to pull out his tube, and he was delirious and. Um, I don't remember why, but we were not allowed to restrain him. So he had a sitter on him for like half a week, and then they're like, you know what? Like we really what's a we, sitter? A sitter is a person who just like sits in oh, the room okay. with them and watches, like babysits, yeah, them, yeah. basically, okay. and like stops him from pulling out his tubes. And then they made a decision, like we can't keep having this person just do this this whole time. We need this staff back. Sure, they're probably fine. And like the very next night, he like pulled out, out his tubes and died. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, but had he? <laughs> that's my experience with that question. Right. Well, that's so. that's pretty scary. But I, I'm I can't help but wonder if that was he. I mean, if this person was sedated to the point where he didn't understand what was going on, then that could have contributed. To, I don't know. Like, how 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 how? If it were me in that situation, and I was, you know, would I have been and, and unsedated? Would I have been able to? be okay with having a tube in my lung. I don't I, I don't know what that feels like. I don't remember what that feels like other than I, I don't really like it. <laughs> like, how much does the delirium interfere with your ability to make sound judgment calls related to your own health? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it turns out people don't tolerate having a tube down their throat. Yeah, it's weird. Through their vocal cords. Yeah, I don't know why. With a balloon inflated on the other side of their vocal cords. Yeah. You what? don't say. Huh. So you have to do something about it, yeah. right? And yeah. and I think maybe with the right person in the right circumstances, maybe you could sort of sort of coach them mm. to tolerate it. Well, there are people who are paralyzed, uh, for instance, and who have to be intubated all the time. Right? Yeah, but they, they there are other ways of doing that, right? So you can give them a trach, for example. Sure, and they did discuss that, and I... There for for some reason they decided not to do it. I guess it's kind of a, you know, and might have been a, a dangerous procedure to 
do i don't remember mm-hmm. exactly why but oh they're risky because yeah. you're creating a new air hole right. for someone right if you lose the previous air hole during that procedure you're in trouble sure. really fast sure sure um but there are you know there's a lot of pharmacologic discussion about it because again this this it's about sedating patients and how do we manage that appropriately and properly over longer periods of time. And there's been a, you know, there's a whole pharmacology discussion we could have about what, you know, what alternatives there are, um, what drugs are helpful in these circumstances, things like benzodiazepines again, uh, make it worse, but there are other drugs. Um, uh, dexmedetomidate is a, uh, dexmedetomidine uh, is uh, used very frequently. It's called Presidex is the brand name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that one can be sedating of, to people but doesn't um, doesn't cause delirium and actually can help with delirium. Um, but again, it, it you know, it's this isn't a drug we can use like on a floor with someone who's not intubated (laughs) that's not safe um but anyway so there's this own you know medical discussion about about that aspect of it but i think you know what i think was really fascinating is that idea that you know you have people who are going through an experience that is so utterly different from your own that you can't really imagine what they're going through and then account for their experience and help them accordingly. You know, we really want, we don't just want to ease pain. We want to ease suffering. Right. And there are, you know, even if it is getting a television or something on the ceiling Mm -hmm. so they can look at it or whatever, you know, we couldn't do that back in 95. I would have been, yeah, that would, that would would have been crushed. That would be be very dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) oh <laughs> uh, well yeah and then there, they could a, put a they could put a mirror a mirror there, right, right? So they were you stare at yourself forever <laughs> no, oh like, you can angle mirrors i don't know if you <laughs> okay. do this oh that's okay. a new thing i do like to stare at myself <laughs> uh and then there's the whole issue of after you're done after you get out of the icu the kind of support that you can get to you know alleviate the you know the ptsd like symptoms that you that you might have afterwards. I don't remember that being something that was, you know, well, I did, I did receive a, uh, a visit from the psychi- psychiatry, uh, folks and, a, and a resident who, um, attempted to, uh, to over, I think it was just one, one time basically helped me get over my, uh, my PTSD or whatever, whatever it was. So anyway, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that's how it works, right? One and done. Yeah, one and done. You just need one appointment Sometimes. after your assault, or one appointment after war, and then you're good. Sometimes that's how it works. I don't think that's how it works usually. I don't I don't know if there's evidence for that claim or not. But no. Uh, let's just assume no. Yeah, let's let's do that. Uh, well, maybe they can use kratom. Yes. Kratom's back, baby. Uh, we still don't know how to pronounce it. Is it kratom? Kratom. What kratom. 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 Uh, as we mentioned a couple of weeks back, um, kratom. Kratom. Kratom is, like is a kratom? Southeast kratom. Asian plant, uh, which is a. Um, it, it has opioid-like effects, but it's not an opioid, um, and it has been. You know, it's another. It's a. It's a. I guess you could call it a traditional medicine, but it's you know clearly. 
a, a psychoactive drug of some kind. It's been suggested that it could be used as a pain reliever, also oh. as a way to get people off of opioids um, through you know medical treatment of opioid addiction. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, the DEA uh, decided that they were classified as a Schedule One mm-hmm. drug on the evidence of you know a few hundred problems or a few hundred reports of uh, problems people have had since like 2000 and uh, 15 deaths, 14 of which were in combination with other drugs. So who knows if Kratom actually had an effect mm-hmm. uh, or was important in that effect. Anyway, uh, this is used like illegally or this is used. Well, it wasn't as... illegal. Okay. It, Kratom isn't, wasn't illegal. Uh, the DEA decided to classify it as a schedule one, oh, okay. uh, you know, mm-hmm. drug, which are dangerous and have no medical use. Uh, according to the law. Um, and then a bunch of people said, what? Come on. No way. A lot of petitions, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, feedback. They also did it without public comment, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is unusual. And so uh, public health experts, lawmakers, others who uh, use Kratom to treat things like opioid dependency had something to say. about. I think I would like to think that the DA was listening to our show <laughs> when we talked about this and they were like, oh, my gosh, we've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Uh, so they have unclassified it as Schedule One for now until December first, hmm. uh, when they are ta- the deadline for public comment. So if you have anything to say about Kratom, okay, I'll look it get up. in touch with the DEA. Okay, uh, I I think honestly the reason why they decided not to schedule it was our wonderful informed discussion yeah. on on the short code with, podcast that we had evidence we we yeah we can evidence based yeah our lasting medical legacy yeah <laughs> exactly. Here's another bit of good news. Uh, you doctors are are better at their jobs than WebMD and Google. Awesome, that's, oh, that's what I shoot for. <laughs> there is there is a, there is a certain amount of proof. So people like me, lay people, often turn to symptom checkers, as they're known, uh, to figure out what's wrong with them. Um, and when I've done that, I uh, invariably have cancer. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's always. Lupus, cancer, and HIV. Lupus, mm-hmm. can- yeah. <laughs> Generally at the same time. I, I, they're very, very serious uh, illnesses I've had. Um, but a study has uh, shown now that given standard a standardized set of cases designed for the study that were a mix of common and uncommon conditions, doctors perform better at diagnosis than these websites and, app, and apps. Doctors are in fact, uh, were in fact 72%, correct 72% of the time. Symptom checkers only 32% of the time. Honestly, uh, 72% doesn't really sound like mm. good guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, we, I'd have to look at it because because some of those things, there's definitely stuff that you can you can you can make a question set that's v- where there are very hard, uncommon conditions to get. Yeah. Well, there even common ones like how do I differentiate from your your asthma from COPD or something? Right. Like you have to ask the right questions. Well, uh, th- I mean, uh, there are some limitations here. I mean, th- there was no because these were standardized basically standardized uh, uh, vignettes, uh, there was no physical exam. Yeah. And physical exams are kind of important. Kind of. Um, Only kind of. (laughs) No, really. (laughs) Doctors were also better uh, in these vignettes. Doctors were better at getting to the correct uncommon diagnosis than uh, computers were. I I don't think that's terribly surprising, but, you know, if you stuck just to the uncommon diagnoses, i.e. diagnoses that required more knowledge, more brain power, more, you know, leaps of, of um, 
creativity, I guess you could say to arrive at, um, they were better at that. So maybe if you just considered uncommon diagnoses, they were a lot better. I don't, I didn't, I didn't note the percentage, but, uh, that seems good. Yeah. Have I a would, job for another few decades. Yeah. Hopefully. <gasps> so I was just going to say, I was talking to a friend the other day and we were discussing about, um, replacements for doctors in the future, like centuries from now. Do you guys think we could ever be replaced by a computer? So I was thinking about that when okay. I when I watched, do you guys remember the Jeopardy show where they had Watson playing, like yeah. IBM's Watson? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. what I was thinking about when I was watching that. I was like, what if we just had Dr. Watson one day <gasps> and he's just like diagnosing everything perfectly. Like, just like he's answering all these Jeopardy questions that I had no idea the answers were. And that doctors become sort of like the technician to make sure like the machine is at the right heart spot, and, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think if we, we we got some really powerful smelling salts and we got Osler back, you know, and we brought him here, <laughs> um, he would say we already are. Physicians already are just technicians, you know. And and so the question then becomes. And why, I think, why would he say that? Because the, the nature of doctoring and the history and the, the way that we take the history and the physical and the amount of detail that's put into it is just so much shorter more rapid fire much less thorough and intricate than it used to be potentially also looking at things like mris and like different diagnostic tools we have now that we didn't used to have like a lot of that's more just like oh hey look it's a 3d representation of the body that's yeah way easier than feeling something on exam there's a heart block it's called the venkibach heart block where your atria that's my nomination for best uh thing name your your medicine. atria and your ventricles get out of sync with each other and it's called a vinkybach yeah um i think okay. it's is it mobitz type 2 i don't yeah. uh, hey <laughs> anyway um you so vinkybach discovered it before ekgs were a thing like it's not very hard to to diagnose on an ekg and computers are probably better at it than humans are already um but Venkibach discovered it by, I think it was simultaneously feeling the pulse of the patient at the wrist, watching jugular venous pulsations at the neck, and listening to the heart all at the same time. Jeez, what a multitasker. And was able to go, hey, your atria are not conduct are not contracting right before your ventricles to fill the ventricle, and then then fire the ventricle so this was all integrated all by physical exam all before you know and now we just put a 12 lead ekg on boom it already give you the diagnosis right and and of course uh, this generation of physicians will learn how to read ekgs maybe um but even to the extent that our previous generation of physicians who are teaching us are like oh you guys don't know how to read ekgs you know because we just don't do as much of it so, so the thing that I think is interesting is that in the next few decades, not centuries, in the next few decades, we're really going to have to look at how does medicine change as we bring more of this stuff in and what is the role of a doctor? Because I would argue, you know, if you took a lot of the sort of data and data mining approaches and we said, oh, okay, this isn't just the average patient that came to my clinic and we were able to take into account their heredity and their job exposures and et cetera, and, you know, through some sort of algorithm. And it was able to give me a list of, you know, most likely diagnoses given chest pain or most likely diagnoses given shortness of breath. 
And then from that data, I can then work with it. How does a physician work with an algorithm? How does a physician work with that? And how do we use those? So for example, instead of replacing your radiologist with a computer algorithm, what if we used computer algorithm to change the way that images were presented to the radiologist? So the, radio, so the image said, well, I think there might be a cancer here. So I'm going to let them look at the, you know, I'm going to let them look at this, but then I'm also going to give them the option that, you know, I highlight this section by changing contrast and doing da 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 you know, kind of giving this machine-aided approach. And because, like you said, what would Dr. Watson be? You know, I don't think someone's going to want to go, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the old fart already, you know, that, that, that people are going to want to go, you know, go into a booth, prick their finger, put the little drop of blood in the, 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 the tube, and then uh, have the computer go, you have stage four lung cancer. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, I could see how that would be a problem. Right? Right? Yeah. Okay, so... I mean, even beyond diagnosing, I think, like, the changing medical landscape thing is true, like, holds true. I was at um, a biomedical devices conference a few years ago in Minneapolis, and we got to watch this robotic... It's, like, a remote robotic prostate, prostatectomy, and they're they're explaining that fantastic already. They're explaining um, the code that had gone into because it's a medical devices conference. The code that had gone into um, the system that they were using to do this procedure, and they had found a way to like like once a surgeon initiates, like they're going to place a suture, it does it. It finishes automat it, that suture automatically for you for the surgeon, which is so cool. But like. What, where where do we get to the point where like oh the the robot could just do the whole thing like it doesn't even need you to start the stitch i you know so i have a theory in, in this theory i've sort of more applied to my job not a doctor um but you know every once in a while i hear the argument of of like oh someday we're going to be replaced by you know i'm going to be replaced by a robot fine uh i don't fear this mostly because I feel like I'm smart enough to do something else. Well, or or maybe even you got shit to do. Like, what if you had something you wanted to do other than a job? Yeah, why just would like I, a why would I, society. Why would I want to spend my time filing something when I could, you know, think about when I or when I could plan some other cool when I could podcast, frankly. Um, so, you know, I just I feel like it's going to be a while before we even need to worry about uh, doctors being replaced by by computers and there are going to be things that doctors can do that computers just won't be able to do for a long time. And I like John's example of the booth where you, you know, cancer diagnosis, that would suck. That would not be the well. Way. Well, if you had to get the cancer diagnosis at the end, like nobody's going to want to do that. But just the booth itself that can diagnose you, I would do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I well, agree. I think it'll be more than likely an integrated approach because you can't really take the humanism out of medicine or else ethically fractitious issues are going to be really difficult for a algorithm to answer for you so maybe like counseling will come more to the forefront in terms of like oh wouldn't it be nice if physicians input yeah wouldn't it be nice if you could focus your attention on the big c the the patient and communication communication (laughs) the big c (gasps) you know the communication issues the the taking care of your patient the things that doctors used to be celebrated for in the days of, you know, Matlock or whatever. Matlock? And, and no, I bet... Uh, what's... Oh, God. Mash? 
No, I don't no? remember. I don't know. <laughs> Some old doctor. Marcus show. Welby. Marcus Welby. Matlock. <laughs> yeah. Marcus I'm, Welby. You I'm, know? I'm picking up what you're laying down. Uh, good. <laughs> um, I, but I, yeah, I, I think if we, do, speaking of evidence-based, I think if we went through all of the personal statements for all of the med students who applied to be in the next class of the Carver College of Medicine, and we came up with sort of like a coding system that, that we could code like phrases, mm-hmm. that almost every one of them, if not, you know, hopefully, uh, more than 90% of them mention taking care of people. Yeah. You know, they want people's lives to be better. They want people, they want to help people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if you can take away, for example, you know, let's say we genome sequence you, we genome sequence your cancer, and then we put them to all, you know, into a big database and we go, oh, okay, well, these cancers do better with with this chemo than with that. Like, that's a problem I, as an oncologist, would not want to do, right? Et cetera. Like, yeah, it's, anesthesia right. drugs, right? So, like, you could you could get sort of a, a guided plan. That's a that's like the world's worst Sudoku puzzle, which yeah. just sounds like they actually work already to me. kind of doing that though with like the like oncology research. Mm-hmm. It's just not quite as automated. It's just like pricking your finger, um, but they're definitely looking at like the associations like that between which chemo drugs work and everything. The 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 one thing I do have to say though that I think is funny about this. So there was that um, I don't know what department of not justice whatever department of jobs u.s department of jobs okay (laughs) uh they did a they did a study and they estimated that i think it was 47 percent of american jobs can be out will are at risk of being outsourced to machines by 2050 i'm kind of making these up but it was an alarming proportion like half of jobs in 30 years okay um and i'll frame this with context and I could have sworn I probably said this like 15 times on the podcast but we built a computer that can beat the world's best chess player at chess right it will never be beaten by humans again and but we can't build a computer that like can sink a 15 foot putt or can uh, you know drive a you know can hit a fastball or, I bet we could. Um, <laughs> I bet yeah. that's not true. I, I, I actually, I, I don't think so. No, at this at this point, the the amount of input integration and the amount, I mean, we're barely able to get computers to drive, right? Now we're starting to get computers to be able to drive better than humans, but driving a car is much easier than hitting a fastball or you know uh, reconstructing a left ventricle or whatever, you know. So. So physical tasks are surprisingly hard, right? I mean, Amazon still uses human beings to like figure out the best way to get six things in a box because the amount of like physical trial and error, the human brain's surprisingly well set up to integrate all of this movement information and kind of put it together. Have you guys ever seen the thing with slime molds and subway systems? Okay. Oh, this rings a bell. Yeah, I think... um so they figured out this thing. If you put food in like agar um, in the same layout as like a subway station would have like huge inputs of people mm-hmm. during the day, and you leave it overnight, then the slime mold will automatically arrange itself in the configuration of subway systems that have over like like hundred years periods of trial and error have been like 
like here's the most efficient way to do this and they just they do it overnight because they are specialized yeah yeah well uh i I welcome my slime old doctor (laughs) guys this is good this is good i like this idea we've got to come up with a way of turning our tasks into something a slime mold can solve exactly (laughs) I think it would. This the I game. Think if the only game to eliminate office politics, I'm all for it. The game. The game approach. Right. How many people out there listening have had a job where they honestly believe that their boss, they would be better off being served by a slime mold as their boss. <laughs> right. I, I feel like the majority of podcast listeners can say at one point in their life oh. that that's been true. Yeah. But but this is there's precedent for making things into, you know, sort of gamifying or sort of changing a task into another task. They've done protein folding, which is like an, a terrible computational problem. Uh, and they turned it into a game like groups of people could get together and try to like if most efficiently fold these proteins. And they solved these structures of some of these biologic proteins. Well, good. Slime molds it is. Yeah, bring them up, bring it on. Hey, uh, listener Jake, if you want to uh, contradict anything John said today, get in touch with us. Oh, God. Or, you know, just come come to med school here. Come to med school here. (laughs) And podcast with us. That's better. By which I mean to say thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard today or have suggestions about what we might discuss next time, let us know. We do love hearing from you on Facebook or Twitter by email at theshortcoats at gmail.com or at 347shortct. A review review on iTunes wouldn't be remiss. Would help uh, the show for sure. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox. Our closing music is by AgriFox. Talk to you in one week. Bye.